Hi, I'm Sarah Trott, and welcome to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm a new mama, and this podcast is all about postpartum care for the first few months following birth, the time period also known as the Fourth Trimester. My postpartum doula, Esther Gallagher, is my co-host. She's a mother, grandmother, perinatal educator, birth and postpartum care provider. Fourth Trimester Care, our topic, is about the practical, emotional, and social support parents and baby require. And importantly, it helps set the tone for the continuing journey of parenting. Hi, this is Sarah Trott. Hi, it's Esther Gallagher. Yes, Sarah's, Sarah's sidekick. We're here together. <laughs> oh, <laughs> if only that were true. The opposite is true. We're back to pick up on a part one. This is a part two for uh, planning your birth plan or as we call it, birth intentions document. We did part one, oh, many months ago, um, and I believe it's episode 13. If you want to go back and listen to episode 13 or check out the birth plan itself, which is a downloadable document on our website. So you can download that and then follow along with us as we go and we talk. But really, I'm going to hand the mic over to Esther um, in just a moment, before I do, I'm going to remind everyone that we have our website, which is fourthtrimesterpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Pinterest, even if you like. And we'd love to interact with you um, in all of those ways. Our emails are available on our website as well. If you look at the About Us page, you can sponsor us. And in fact, we would love it if you would sponsor us, actually, for as little as a dollar a show. That would Help us out a lot because we're a small operation and every little bit goes a long way for us. So thank you so much to our existing sponsors and please do participate in that way if you can. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So Esther, okay. We left off talking about um, consulting about medical procedures. So let's just get everyone in the right mindset here. So we're thinking about what what's actually happening in, in a home birth or a hospital birth or other environment kind of birth center. place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, birth center. Um, so you're there, you're in the moment. This is talking about everything that's happening during the birth itself. And, uh, you know, having these things written down is really helpful for everyone in the room to kind of get on the same page about if something comes up, how would we want to respond so that there aren't that many open-ended questions um, because in the moment, I think everyone wants to be focused on having a healthy baby and a healthy mom. So, all right, we left off talking about uh, EFM. Yeah, so um, actually we left off talking about getting some privacy around making any non-emergency decisions about um, medical procedures, etc. And so we're going to jump in and talk about electronic fetal monitoring, which is pretty standard in the hospital setting. Uh, everybody gets some amount of that done during uh, your labor and birth. In a home birth setting, there would be a protocol for how often to listen to the baby, and that listening would be done with a fetoscope or a Doppler, and the midwife would just touch the mom's tummy with the device and listen through uh, a uh, contraction or two or three every so often. So like every hour, uh, depending on what stage the labor was at, you would not in a home birth setting have a, a monitor strapped to your tummy 
the whole time during labor. Um, now, in the hospital setting, uh, sometimes you have to really advocate for yourself if you want what we call intermittent monitoring. And that would be a term that you could use in your preferences plan. Um, and so long as you came into the hospital having experienced a healthy, normal pregnancy and a healthy, normal course of labor, uh, you would be entitled to not be subjected to continuous fetal monitoring. Um, there are good reasons why you might uh, be subjected <laughs> to continuous fetal monitoring, but if it's your preference not to, it's something that you can address in your birth preferences, and in which case they would have to be giving you a good reason why they feel your baby requires continuous monitoring. Now, along with that fetal monitoring, you would also be having your contractions monitored. And typically with these external devices, that's a rough guesstimate about how strong your contractions are. It does not give us um, any sort of specific measurement but it will tell us if it's if the if the monitoring is working appropriately. It will tell us how often your contractions are, and more or less how long they are, and maybe relative to each other how strong they are. Um, but it doesn't actually measure the strength of your uterus as it's contracting. The next thing on our list is no internal fetal monitoring unless absolutely necessary and. May I ask a question, actually? Oh, absolutely, sure. Okay, going back to the fetal monitoring, the mm -hmm. external part. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a really big strap that goes over the belly and right. around the whole body. Mm -hmm. And I remember all too clearly that when in labor, I really didn't want anything on me because it was painful, especially in the back labor when the big contractions started happening. Mm -hmm. So I, I see a very practical purpose. I just wanted to add this in to avoiding having that on if it's not medically necessary because it will be a lot more comfortable during labor. Yeah. You're going to be able to move around and walk around and not be chained to something that's two feet away mm -hmm. uh, and uh, have it be squeezing you. Yeah. Oh, ouch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 There are various, there are a couple ways that they can strap those monitors on you. And one's like a tube top that goes around your belly all the way around. It's wide. And some moms actually like that. Even when they're not being monitored, they like to leave that on because something about that traction feels good to them. Mm. And other moms, it's claustrophobic, like just feels terrible. Um, the other way is separate straps for each monitor device that go around and they're, they're about three inches wide and they're very stretchy. And some moms find that they're just ungainly and they slip around a lot and other moms find that they're just right and they're not that noticeable. So these are things, you know, that uh, most hospitals have both, believe it or not. So you can experiment with those in the event that there was a good reason why you were going to be continuously monitored. Um, neither one is a perfect solution. <laughs> yeah. in, my, in my 39 years of watching people in labor, like, there's always something about them that's a little irritating. Now, that's not a reason why we shouldn't do it, <laughs> but if there's good reason that you don't have to have them, that's always nice. And 
the thing to really ask about is, can you not wear those things? And when you need to be monitored, the nurse can just hold the fetal monitor to your tummy while you're having that surge, right? Mm -hmm. That is actually possible to do, right? Just like it's also possible in most settings to use the remote telemetry. That's a device that allows you to walk away from the monitor um, without, you know, without being plugged in and tethered by a four foot cord. Right. So these are all some of the options around touching in with your baby and making sure that they are faring well with your labor, mm-hmm. um, which is important, right? It's just that it doesn't necessarily have to be constant. Yep. Um, so, so the other way to actually hear a baby's heartbeat is with an internal fetal monitor. And it's actually a device that um, has a tiny little corkscrew at the end of it that is actually embedded in the skin of the baby's scalp, which scares most people. I know it scared me thinking and hearing about it. (laughs) I haven't seen babies react terribly badly to them, but what do I know? I mean, I don't know what the possible side effects are of that, but I will say that while I think it's to be avoided and I think hospitals try to avoid it unless it is actually necessary, In an instance where um, we're very concerned about the baby and we're we're not sure based on the external fetal monitor whether or not the baby's actually doing as well as we think they should be and we think they might not be doing well, the the internal fetal monitor is typically a good way to just get only the baby's heartbeat, no other external noise, and find out whether or not they're in a good zone. Um, So I've been at births where I've seen, you know, nurses messing around with the external monitor, causing the mom a great deal of discomfort while pushing um, and not getting a heart beating trace that, that is reassuring, right, at a critical moment. And while I would prefer not to use the internal monitor, I have on occasion suggested to the attending person who's about to catch the baby that they use one so that we can be reassured because I'm pretty sure the baby is okay and I think the mom needs to just not have the discomfort of the external monitor being crammed around on her pubic bone while she's trying to actually push her baby out, which would be the safest thing to do to actually get the baby born. So I think that there are good um, instances, you know, there are instances where um, maybe it wasn't necessary because the baby was doing well, but nobody knew the baby was well. So this was reassuring to everybody. And then the mother could actually have some ease and grace and the pushing mm-hmm. as an example of maybe an appropriate use that wasn't strictly necessary in my mind. <laughs> um, and again, it's because of the electronic fetal monitoring, the external fetal monitor is such a bad design. It's a bad design. Let's say it together. Bad design. <laughs> bad design. Within the next five years, I expect to see a much smarter engineering job, design job, 
And if we don't see it in the next 10 years, I don't know why women will keep having their babies in the, mo- in the hospital. <laughs> because it's long overdue. <laughs> so um, the, our next item is keep vaginal exams to a minimum. There are a couple of reasons why that could be important to you. One is that you may be somebody who experiences a great deal of discomfort in labor, both being on your back and being examined vaginally. You can expect that it's going to be pretty uncomfortable to go through exams. There are good reasons to have exams during labor, but it's not a good reason to have an exam just because the doctor happens to show up and wants to, right? So good reasons would be that you feel that your labor is changing and you want to make a good decision about whether and how and in what forms you want to experience better comfort with your labor. Remembering that labor must get longer, stronger, closer together, much more intense. So as your labor gets that way and you're thinking, gosh, I'm not sure that I want to hew to my my intention of having a quote-unquote natural childbirth, I'm really thinking about some other uh, medical pain management, then I always think that it's a really great idea to have an exam to determine where you are currently in your labor, just in terms of dilation and effacement vis-a-vis how long you've been in labor and some very broad, loose prediction around how long you will be in labor. Um, Because I think those are the sorts of things that we have to talk about when uh, moms are thinking that they somehow can't go on. As Sarah probably remembers, it's one thing to find out that you're three centimeters and it's another thing to find out you're seven centimeters Um, and what that means in terms of where your labor's going and and how it's going can make the difference between, you know, getting pain medication that you maybe later would prefer not to have gotten because you have this idea that you wanted a natural childbirth and being able to ask your birth team to sort of lean in Um, or expect them to, really, you shouldn't have to ask, (laughs) lean in and support you a little more deeply, get you into the shower or the tub to kind of get you over the hump of transition labor. Um, That kind of information should be very, very helpful to your doula in terms of helping you make good choices around what you need for support, and also um, might inform you as to whether you feel like you're going to be able to Uh, hang in there a little longer or not. I mean, it's perfectly wide open, your choice, um, no judgments about that in any way. But, um, you know, that's, that's a place where you and your birth team can make, help you make good decisions about where to go next. So I have a good friend who was having her second baby, a little boy, and she was in the hospital, and she she thought she was quite a ways along. The doctor was very busy. Some nurses had come in and come in and out, and they said, "Well, all right, let's get you, let's get your epidural going." And she said, "Well, can you tell me how close I am? Because I feel like I'm close, and if I'm close, 
then I'd like, I'd just like to go for it and yeah. try it. And they said, well, we can't check you and the doctor's not, not going to be here for like 15 minutes or so. So do you want to, do you want to just have it? Cause now's a chance you either have it or you don't. And she said, well, fine. If you put me in that situation, I guess I'll just do it. She got her epidural. The doctor walked in the room and he said, all right, you're ready to go push. And she just felt so disappointed that she, if, had they just checked, mm-hmm. um, she would have really known where she was and probably been able to have a, a natural birth without the, yeah. without the epidural. No problem. Yeah. And I have to say that's, um, you know, that's a kind of emotional blackmail that should never happen to women in the hospital setting. Like I've heard that story so many times. Right. Like so many times, like rather than saying to a mom who's like really working hard, wow, you're doing great. You know, um, let's, you know, let's see what we can do to, to help you through this phase. Cause it's probably going to be soon, which is way more encouraging. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and why a nurse couldn't have checked her is beyond me. Nurses can do vaginal exams, mm-hmm. right? They can just to see how hard they're down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially when an epidural is a question, right? Because it is, by the way, people, always a question. It's never obligatory. The idea that you would feel obliged to make a decision about when and where to have your epidural is wrong. And should never you should never be faced with that kind of that kind of idea. But I see this idea come up again and again and again, and it's just not true. And right. you might have to wait for your epidural a little longer mm-hmm. if the anesthesiologist happens to be giving someone else an epidural. <laughs> but that doesn't mean you should have gotten an epidural. Right? Right. Doesn't mean you should have gotten an epidural. Would no. you say the same is true for other drugs like the Pitocin or pain relievers, things like that? Pitocin, um, which is oh, to speed up labor? Certainly. Well, in any case, if you were thinking that you wanted something um, because you felt like it was early on, um, you know, you, they just don't give you fentanyl once you start to be in really active labor. And what's, so what's it's that? not a choice. So fentanyl is a narcotic, right? It's a very powerful, potent narcotic that because of its deep power, to, you know, depress your body and make you feel sleepy and drowsy. And for some people, they can actually fall asleep under the influence of this drug. Mm-hmm. Um, but because unlike morphine, it's short acting, it's used for women who are sort of in that early middle phase of labor, maybe an early active labor, but not very far along in the process. Mm-hmm. The reason being that, of course, as with morphine, your baby will be under the influence as well, and they will they they want to know how dilated you are and make a good prediction about when you're going to deliver your baby, so that your baby is not under the influence of a narcotic when they're born. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you should never, honestly, like I don't think it's intelligent to use morphine or fentanyl if you have not been recently examined to tell where you are in terms of your effacement and dilation because those drugs should only be used in in the latent or early phase of labor. Um, you said late or early or latent? 
So like to be four three centimeters early. Yeah. Only the earliest stages. Yeah. And and just to be clear, you know, a woman who's been having contractions that have been keeping her up all night, who isn't yet uh, dilating and effacing, might be a good candidate for some morphine and some sleep, mm-hmm. right? Because it might be three more nights before she delivers a baby. Yeah. So, so while I am certainly as big a proponent for quote unquote natural childbirth as there is, I also think there are some very, very good applications of medicine, (laughs) including narcotics, um, for certain kinds of labor that women are experiencing. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, some morphine sleep in a late labor, what we call prodromal labor, might make the difference for a mother who's hoping for to avoid an epidural, right? Because she'll get some sleep and maybe feel better energy for the labor that she ultimately has. Mm-hmm. Um, no promises, but you know, certainly it's it's something that I think is worthy of a try um, for moms, right? So, and since we're on the topic, um, just kind of continuing along the, the path of what we were talking before, um, the, the relationship between the fetal monitoring and the drugs is really hand in hand, isn't it? Oftentimes, right? I've heard Certainly, that. yeah. If you're going to have um, fentanyl, I think that they are going to want you to also have an IV, perhaps, and or... Um, uh, be continuously monitoring the baby to see that they respond appropriately. Yeah, yeah. I'm not necessarily with the marking, believe it or not. Oh, right. <laughs> They'll actually send you home with that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's. It's a much milder drug. It'd be not much nicer to sleep at home, I think, mm-hmm. in one's own bed if that were an option. Mm-hmm. So, so I've heard about this cycle of, um, as it relates to cesareans, for example, a cycle of. Pitocin, which increases cramping and increases contractions or surges, that's really painful. So as a result, get some pain medication. Yeah, and that's what people say about it. And I'm here to tell you that if for some reason you are a candidate for Pitocin to augment your labor, the best thing for you is to consider it as a natural augmentation of labor. The trick with Pitocin, and they no longer give Pitocin to a woman who isn't starting to have a ripe cervix. In the old days, the reason Pitocin was so daunting for women is that we did not have mesoprostol and Cervidil to help ripen the cervix, to get it to a state where it was going to be able to dilate. Okay. The other thing about Pitocin is that often because of all the distractions involved in being in the hospital having an IV, having the fetal monitor going, etc. women often aren't in a state where they're really tuned into their labor. And so they tend to experience the Pitocin contractions sort of crashing into them before they're quote-unquote ready, mm-hmm. okay? Whereas if they were just kind of internal, internal the way women often allow themselves to become, with a labor that's quote-unquote natural, right? Um, they're just sort of committed to labor, and they're in their labor. And so 
when I'm working with clients who are either being induced or augmented in their labor, I try to remind them that we don't have to talk. It's okay to like just listen to the labor and listen deeply and hear those little quiet notes of a you know a contraction about to come because you know I'm sure you even remember Sarah like there was a point in your labor where you know if you didn't give every ounce of your attention to just being present for what was actually happening in the moment it was going to crash over you like a big old wave mm-hmm. right and mess you up <laughs> mm-hmm. so um so I think that the the lore about Pitocin is a little heavy-handed. You know, it's a little, it sets women up for a kind of um, uh, collapse around the project of having a baby mm-hmm. in a way that it doesn't have to. With good support and a good understanding of how induction and augmentation actually works, mm-hmm. a woman can actually get through a labor that actually involves these things quite well, yeah. you know, and sometimes, you know, you have to consider that the potential trade-off between no Pitocin and Pitocin is a labor that may never quite get itself all the way together and is going to drag out in such a way that a woman necessarily become exhausted will necessarily need that epidural and then gets the pitocin anyway she might not have to deal with the pitocin mm-hmm. you know or the labor for that matter which is fair enough but in the meantime if she's sort of had a labor that has been dragging on and isn't making progress and is has the potential to exhaust her a little bit of pitocin might have organized her labor in a very progressive fashion so while I'm all for avoiding these things whenever possible, I also have seen these very same things make all the difference for moms who wanted to have, you know, wanted to give birth vaginally without drugs, right? It's like, okay, now I'm having an actually progressive labor. That means I'm going to have my baby today and not be exhausted because it's day three or four. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, these are all things that we have to kind of, it, you know, it, it's one of the reasons to have a pretty uh, experienced doula who can support you through all of these decision points um, and ask you the question. So how are you feeling right now? You know, um, if I hear a client say, well, I feel okay, but I also feel like I'm getting tired and I'm getting a little discouraged because it feels like things aren't moving a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, okay, then we can have that discussion about how, what are the ways that we can attempt to have things move along We can talk about the quote-unquote natural ones and the quote-unquote not natural ones and make good decisions about um, what to try next. It's all a big experiment, mm-hmm. right? So um, well, that's sounds, those are discussions. Right, and that sounds like a gentle approach, right? You're listening to your body. You're having a conversation with someone. Um, I've heard of cases where someone is sort of thrown into the deep end during their labor, hit a ton of Pitocin pretty early. Mm-hmm. It's extremely painful. Have to have the feel-good drugs to counteract that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then suddenly now we're just on constant watch to make sure that the baby's heart rate doesn't drop, which is what the fetal monitoring is for, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. for a large part. And then if the if the baby's heart rate drops to a certain point, then it's, okay, cesarean. Right. And, and those scenarios can precipitate. 
Right. And so part of and the thing that was really interesting for me, um, just as an observer of cases like this, is that um, those heavy, heavy contractions, I think you might have even said this in a previous conversation, but um, that the that the body is squeezing that baby really hard in a way that kind of isn't isn't as natural as if the body were on its own. And that squeezing is sometimes what can cause the, the baby's heart to race or react in a funny way. Right. So here's what babies need to get through a surge, right? They need good oxygenation between the contractions so that they can have enough oxygen on board during the squeeze um, that they make it through, right? So there's two elements to this. One is, what is the quality of the squeeze? Really, usually it's duration. Like, is it going on too long? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, I've seen women in quote-unquote natural labor have contractions that need to stop and aren't stopping. Okay, just so you know, that's possible. That's called a tetanic contraction, like tetanus, where the muscle grips and doesn't relax. I just hear the titanic ship. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Most people are out of control. Yeah. Right. So um, tetanic contractions are possible in nature. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And on occasion, Pitocin might precipitate something like that as well. So that's why we're monitoring the baby. As, as good a reason as any. Is this baby getting enough oxygen that whatever contractions the mom is having, the baby can make their way through that contraction to the end without sort of dropping down because they don't they no longer have enough oxygen to kind of carry them through. So we see those um, decelerations in the heart rate at the end, like after a contraction's over, then the baby sinks. And that's kind of what we call an ominous, you know, reading of the baby. And, and I have seen that turn around just by getting mothers to breathe deeply in and all the way out continuously throughout not only the contraction itself, but in between. In other words, don't just fall asleep and not breathe between surges. Okay, which some moms do in, in transition labor, um, which is the longest, strongest, closest together surges that most women have. Mm-hmm. Okay, so again, I want to emphasize that just because you have Pitocin doesn't mean that will happen. Right. Right. Yeah. It's not about scaring someone out of ever using it. Right. And you're responsible for breathing well for your baby during labor, whatever stage of labor you're in. So nice, deep, slow, thorough ins, thorough outs, so that you're making room for a lot of oxygen in your body. In fact, um, I've seen women turn those decelerations around completely by themselves by doing what we would call in physical training, um, front loading, right? Where you... So notice I'm taking a really strong in-breath and I'm really blowing it out. I'm getting rid of that CO2 so that I make room for oxygen and I'm doing a kind of hyperventilation style. I'm really trying to get that loaded on mm-hmm. heavy before I do the next thing. Yeah. Now, I feel better. 
too, by the way. It really wakes you up. It makes you feel kind of less pain and really ready for the next thing. So um, normally I wouldn't want a mom hyperventilating, which is actually usually hypoventilating where they're, right, they're not actually breathing out and getting rid of the CO2. Yeah. Okay. You have got to release the CO2 and then take a big suck in and get the oxygen loaded on your red blood cells for the baby. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, great question, Sarah, because I'm really seeing the difference with my clients in terms of like, can they just wake up and be part of the project mm-hmm. and really help themselves and their baby get through this phase? Because it's usually just a phase. Mm-hmm. You know? Um. Uh, but it is a phase where it's often the case that the hospital say, okay, things are going wrong. <laughs> you know, we've got to intervene. And then, yeah, yeah and then unplanned cesarean, which mm-hmm. is uh, such a high rate here in the United States. And I just want to mention that um, although the data has been available for a long time, we noticed that Yelp recently um, for California and maybe other states too, um, made data uh, on cesarean rates, but hospital by hospital available on Yelp. I mean, we don't get sponsored by Yelp. That would be great if they wanted to sponsor us and they hear this, please do mm-hmm. by all means. But I'm just mentioning it because it's a, it's a handy little tool. And if you're thinking about, um, you know, what you'd like to happen, that could be part of a, a consideration. Although I think the truth is that the more interesting data would be cesarean by doctor and that's not necessarily available. Yeah. Um, but by hospital, <laughs> by hospital is, is uh, insightful. As yeah. Well. And I think what I'll say about that, Sarah, is that, when you're looking at hospital statistics, one of the things that should be taken to, into consideration, and I do not know whether Yelp does this, is whether or not that hospital is, say, for instance, a magnet hospital for high-risk mothers, right? Mm-hmm. That's going to naturally sway the number of C-sections because if you've got a high-risk mom, you're more likely to need to intervene on that pregnancy and or labor and delivery than you would with a mother who comes in presenting with a very healthy end of pregnancy. Yeah, the data comes from, not from Yelp themselves, but from an underlying uh, system. We'll have to look Mm -hmm. it up and mention it on this, uh, on our website. But I think, I believe that was taken into account. Yeah. I believe they they took care of that to even out the scores. Yeah. There was a a good... um, a uh, little article or TED talk or something where the person sort of parsing all of this said, you know, what we really need in America in general are less unnecessary C-sections and more necessary C-sections. So in other words, there are situations where um, a, a C-section could be done that would actually be proactively um, the best make for the best outcome and those aren't being done. Yeah. Right. And so we're pushing some pregnancies past where they're healthy and normal and then not doing a C-section that might've actually meant a better outcome for mom and baby, but we're doing far too many on balance. We're doing far too many C-sections that could have and should have been avoided. So we're in that funny place mm-hmm. where we're not utilizing the technology of C-sections in the way it was really should have been intended to be used. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and um, just to circle back around to C-sections, one of the things that um, doesn't often get mentioned is that because part of the 
the drug mix for um, the, the epidural involves a, a narcotic like morphine. Um, those sorts of drugs tend to drop uh, mother's blood pressure. And that's one of the reasons why if you didn't have one yet, you would be given an IV to prop up your blood pressure, to make sure you're very well hydrated when those drugs take effect so that your blood pressure does not drop precipitously, which would affect the baby. It affects the blood flow through the placenta and the cord to the baby. So it's not a great idea to get a, a... um, an epidural without making sure you're well hydrated. And by the way, being decently hydrated for labor is important in any case. It can slow your labor down. It can be. It can make for a very um, problematic labor if your muscles aren't well hydrated. And by that, I don't mean that you drink a gallon of water. Just don't do that. That's not helpful at all. Sip hydrating beverages continuously and make sure you pee every couple of hours. That's baseline for getting through labor. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, another reason to keep vaginal exams to a minimum besides just the discomfort of it and the fact that you don't really need to know unless you need to know is that especially if your bag of waters is open, then each time we do a vaginal exam, we're actually potentially pushing bacteria in and up towards the uterus and increasing the potential risk for an infection. So that's another good reason to keep those to a minimum. And having said all that, I just want to reiterate that it's just a really good idea to get a vaginal exam if you're at a place in your labor where you feel like you need to make a decision about anything. Um, Knowing your status of labor is a good piece of information. And if you're going to be examined before you get examined, it's a good idea to ask the examiner, can you please check not only my dilation and effacement, but also the position of the baby in terms of descent. So we call that station. So you want to know what station the baby's in and what position the head's in. So does that mean your baby's anterior posterior, or asynclitic. Those are all good words to use in labor or for your doula to use in labor, especially if they know what they mean. What do they mean? (laughs) So anterior baby is a baby who's in the proper, for most pelvises, the proper position. The back of the baby's head is towards mom's pubis, right? Pubic bone. So if a woman was laying, mom is laying on her back, and the baby's back is facing the ceiling. Right. Yes. So the mother's anterior, okay, that means the front. The posterior means the back, right? In fact, some people use posterior to mean butt. <laughs> the mom's posterior is her back side. Um, a baby who's in a posterior position can make for a longer, more challenging labor with um, a tremendous amount of back pain. In which case, if you're having any of that, get on your hands and knees and that's, stay there. That's when if mom's laying on her back, the baby's back is also facing the floor. Right. Yeah, exactly. So optimally, the baby is in an anterior position with the back of their head slightly to the mother's left until they get into position for pushing. Um, asynclitic means that the baby's head 
is actually tilted in relationship to the pelvis itself. So if you think of the plane, like a flat plane, uh, imaginary plane across the floor of the pelvis or the midpoint of the pelvis, the baby's head is not also in that same plane. So one of the ears is up higher than the other ear, for instance, or maybe the chin is tucked over towards one shoulder or the other, or something of that nature where they're just not kind of slipping into the pelvis directly with the back of their head, um, which can mean the baby can have a little more difficulty getting pushed through. Mm-hmm. All of these things can be um, potentially can be adjusted, right? So it's just good to know what's happening and make good decisions about anything that is. Um, allow the mother to assume birthing positions of her choice. So, a mother who's not under the influence of epidurals. Uh, could be standing and or squatting to push. She could be lying on one uh, on her side to push the baby out with legs up in a otherwise semi-squatting position. Um, there might be uh, a squatting bar attached to the bed that the mother can use. Um, plenty of babies are born with moms on their hands and knees, and that's particularly important if a baby's going to be built, born posterior. It's actually a good position to give birth to a posterior baby. Um, You could imagine other possibilities. Um, Leaning over the bed, uh, so not quite hands and knees, a mom standing, but leaning forward. Uh, We may end up getting into part three of this, but we'll just keep going. Okay, so, um, and, you know, during the pushing phase, you may try all kinds of different positions before you finally feel like you've found the one that feels progressive for you. So do experiment if that seems right. Um, That's the kind of situation where it's really helpful to a mom to have people around who are going to suggest shifts and changes depending on how pushing is going. Mm and we'll, maybe we'll uh, do two more of these because I think that it's a great sort of uh, segue to the last part. Okay. Yeah, maybe getting to part the, three. Part three, which would be af- after the after birth. After birth, yes. Yeah. It says, please use warm compress and counter pressure instead of perineal massage to help avoid um, tearing or episiotomy. So um, most moms uh, are going to be able to give birth without, I mean, most of us, on the planet uh, or having been born over the millions of years that that we've been around would have been given birth by women who um, (laughs) had very little assistance um, and would have given birth without major tearing. So um, warm compresses just help the perineum kind of relax and stretch naturally as the baby's being born. And it also is kind of nice for moms to have a place to kind of focus their their pushing efforts. So if they can feel that warmth and feel kind of the, the slight pressure on the perineum, it helps them focus where they're pushing the baby towards. Um, perineal massage used to be something that was quite popular it still is among some people who learn to do it and it can be overdone and cause 
perineal tissue to swell. And so we want to be very gentle if we're doing any perineal massage or, or pressure of any kind. Um, episiotomies, at least in, in the part of California I live in now, are rather rare. Um, really, they should only be used in one of two cases, and that is that we need to emergently emergently get a baby out who's really not doing well. Um, and that's going to help to do that. And that's rare that that's the case. I mean, in most cases, you can get the baby out without um, an episiotomy. Or if a mom has a very tight hymenal ring that's intact and isn't going to release in order that the baby can come out. So I've seen this on a couple of occasions and mom's pushing brilliantly. Babies come down really nice. And now there's like, <laughs> there's like a tight circular band that's not allowing the perineum to actually stretch out of the way of the baby. And it's actually holding the baby back. And so in all the cases where I've seen an episiotomy offered, it was offered. Right. Like it wasn't there was no forcing it. There was no saying you have to do this. It was like, well, would you like us to? <laughs> and the moms have all said, I need the baby to be out like the baby is like almost out. And I, can, I can't just sit here with the baby almost out. Um, and, you know, they're quite careful in those cases to support the perineum and do a very tiny snip to just release that tight band of tissue. Um, so. There are occasions when they're, they could be a good idea. There's almost no other reason to do it mm -hmm. than those two reasons. Yeah, the idea of, uh, of any kind of slicing and dicing or tearing of that very sensitive area is terrifying. Yeah, uh, most women, if they think much about it, don't want to think much about it. Right, no. Yeah. Uh, but in that moment, I, I would have to say, based on limited experience, but um, <laughs> you're not feeling that anyway. There's yeah. so much going on. Um, it's sort of the least, least concern and, and a natural tear here or there, um, is if that happens is probably right. Mm -hmm. Um, and heals well. Yeah. You know, yeah. especially if mom is otherwise healthy at the end of pregnancy, um, then, you know, eating a really healthy, nourishing, um, pro healing diet without sugar in it is going to be the thing to do to help you get, uh, healed and recovered from any kind of um, perineal tearing. Yeah. And the daily sits bath, particularly if it has the appropriate herb tea added to it. And that's um, a lay down bath, not the toilet tub bath. Right. I, I like the one enough. where we clean the tub really thoroughly for mom each time. Um, and we would have, you know, brewed the tea uh, and then strained it into the tub and four inches of warm water and mom can sit in that for 20 minutes and just it's very cleansing, healing and astringent and helps all that tissue come back together naturally. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that's not to say that major tears aren't a real thing. That's, that's different. We're just talking about the minor ones. Yeah. So, okay. So now the last thing we'll say before we go, or before we go to part three next time yeah. <laughs> is that, um, Many uh, people giving birth as as a couple or as a family, other you know that aren't single parents might like to have their partner receive the baby, 
And that's perfectly okay. If that appeals to you and you'd like to try that, then the person who's uh, supporting you in those moments, the, the doctor or midwife, will support you in receiving the baby into your hands uh, when they're born and then help you bring the baby onto mom's tummy after that. No reason why you can't. All right. So we will stop there. We're going to wrap up and say thank you for listening to part two mm-hmm. of the birth plan. Also we'll try to get part three to you soon. Birth <laughs> intentions. Yes. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> okay, well, we'll get, we'll get part three out soon. We know a lot of you are listening eagerly and awaiting this. Mm-hmm. Um, we know it's going a bit long, but it's worth touching on these subjects and making sure you understand sort of what these decisions look like and what the implications are uh, if possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, just just as a sneak preview, we're going to talk about cesarean birth, and then we're also going to talk about the immediate postpartum, right after birth. All right. Thank you so much. See you next time. Don't forget to check out our website, fourthtrimesterpodcast.com. Sign up for our newsletter. Like us on Facebook. Sponsor us, please, on patreon.com. Please. <laughs> Thank you so much, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks. Thanks, Sarah. Bye. Bye. You can subscribe to this podcast in order to hear more from us. Thank you for listening, everyone. And I hope you'll join us next time on the fourth trimester. The theme music on this podcast was created by Sean Trott. Hear more at soundcloud.com slash Sean Trott. Special thanks to my true loves, my husband, Ben, daughter, Penelope, and baby girl, Evelyn. Don't forget to share the fourth trimester podcast with any new and expecting parents. I'm Sarah Trott. Goodbye for now.